Welcome to P.S. Blossom, a podcast series driven by purpose and the belief that each of us has the power to transform the world for the better. We are here to be a catalyst for activism. We believe empowering individuals empowers communities. We also recognize that unless we engage in the issues of race, gender, and class within reproductive and maternal health, we cannot be a part of the solution. Our goal with P.S. Blossom is to empower all women, especially Black, Indigenous, and women of color, to advocate for their health care their way. These are conversations creating change. Please be sure to like, subscribe, leave comments, and share. So last time we just gotten started with talking about race and how it factors into puberty, adolescents, young people and sexual development, sex education, and how that shows up in their day-to-day lives, in communities, at school. Brittany, can you start us off with that? Yeah. So our black and brown communities are at an increased risk for negative health outcomes when it comes to all aspects of health. My expertise is in sexual health and we see that in higher mortality rates for black and brown people with a uterus. We see that as long acting contraceptive methods are pushed on young people of color more than their counterparts. And then just the intersection of like where that lives for a young person who has brown skin, identifies as LGBT, how does that impact your space or your feeling of safety within a classroom space? And the data shows, GLSEN has provided excellent data every other year that shows that young people don't feel safe in classroom spaces, especially young people who identify as LGBT. And a lot of where they are feeling unsafe comes from the adults within those classroom spaces and within those school settings. And all of that then impacts the education that a young person receives. It then coupled with the systemic racism that then will allow access to housing, which then impacts what kind of education you get, what school district you're living in. Are you in a food desert? All of these things will then come together to then greatly impact the trajectory of a person's life and what they're able to then achieve. And so I think to not talk about it is a complete disservice and is not going to lend towards that complete education that we deserve. And racial justice is sex education. And so any curricula that is talking about sex education and is trying to provide this information to young people needs to talk about racial justice and how we as the adults in these spaces, once again, have to be doing the work to really center the experiences of Black and brown people so that we all have equitable access to the lives that we want to lead. And I'm not saying equal. I'm talking about equitable because we've done such a bad job in the past. I'm going to give you more than I'm going to give other people just so I can get you to the same starting line where everybody else had access to from the very beginning just by existing. And so when I talk about complete sex education, I'm talking about racial justice too. It goes so far beyond the limitations of what people really sometimes allow themselves to think about when they think of sex education. I want to bring a couple of terms into this space, Brittany, that you've brought up 
And I think that we've kind of been like circling around. And the first is reproductive justice. Brittany, you talked about racial justice and specifically incorporating racial justice into sex education. And I think for me, working from a reproductive justice framework is a way to do that. Reproductive justice is a term coined by an organization called Sister Song. The founders were headquartered here in Chicago, Illinois, which is where I'm broadcasting from. And uh, reproductive justice was created really as a response to a lot of feminist movements, reproductive rights movements that truly did not take into account the needs of people of color. And so uh, Sister Song, again, created reproductive, the term reproductive justice to counteract this. Previously, the reproductive rights movements were very much focused on like legal rights. So the legal right to an abortion, the legal right to contraception. But it ignored the fact that for hundreds of years, Black and brown parents have not been able to parent their children, have not been able to make these informed decisions to not have not been able to have bodily autonomy and have not been able to raise their children in safe and sustainable communities. And so uh, to address that and to incorporate all of those needs, that's what reproductive justice takes into account. And so it's the original sort of sister song definition is uh, the human right to maintain bodily autonomy, to have children, to not have children, and to parent the children that we do have in safe and sustainable communities. And yeah, that's reproductive justice. Thank you so much, Ailea, for defining that for us. Can you expand further on what that looks like in terms of teaching, not only teaching parents about navigating the experience with their children when it comes to privacy and confidentiality, and when it comes to taking the journey around consent and what that actually looks like and shows up as? Absolutely. So I think when we think about consent, very often we think about consent in sexual context. But from what young people have told us, they want to know about consent in every context, in medical situations, in situations like education, all kinds of different ways. So really, it's being able to say what happens to your body, this kind of holistic understanding of consent. When I'm thinking about, for example, talking to parents and thinking about young people's right to confidentiality and medical care, I live in a state, Illinois, where young people have a lot of rights and privacy when it comes to confidentiality. My organization, CI3, was a part of a group that released testimony in support of a bill, HB 370, that recently repealed parental notification of for minors receiving an abortion. So now minors in Illinois can receive abortion care without having to go through the parental notification process. And uh, I think If you are somebody who loves a young person, if there are young people in your life, you may kind of like balk at that a little bit. Wait, but I want my 12-year-old to have to tell me. But what we found overwhelmingly, the reality is that if a young person is in a situation where they need help, where they need care, 
they want to reach out to a trusted adult. And so as parents, as adults, it's our job to make ourselves those trusted adults so that young people do feel safe coming to us in these situations, do feel safe communicating. Because the reality is that if a young person doesn't feel safe communicating about the need for abortion care with one or more of their parents, it's probably for a good reason. And we need to trust them that they know that because they're the ones who've been navigating their own safety their entire lives. We all have been navigating our own safety our entire lives. Our job as adults is to make ourselves those trusted adults so that if something happens, not only are the young people we love equipped, but they also feel safe coming to us for help. Yes. And you're, what you're touching on this piece around safety, how, and Brittany, I want you to jump in here as well. How do we create these containers of safety? How do parents create these containers of safety in the home, but also how do people in the community and educators and whoever young people are interacting with, how can they create these containers of safety? Yeah, this is a really great point because the majority of parents are incredibly supportive of sex ed. And most people are surprised to learn that. We have data that shows the majority of parents are actually incredibly supportive of sex ed because they don't want to talk about it at home. They're like, you do it at school. That sounds fantastic. Send the worksheet home and I'll continue the conversation. But please don't make me take on one more thing. I have to do math, social studies. Like I didn't get sex ed. How am I supposed to do this at home? And so for us, this is really about partnering with parents and caregivers and making sure that young people don't fall through the cracks. And I'm a public health nerd. And so these are the kinds of models that are best practices that they have trusted adults throughout their entire lifetime in multiple settings. So at school, maybe at basketball practice, at church, in the community, at home, and helping our young people to identify at least 10 trusted adults who they can go to just goes to increase those protective factors for our young people. And I think that I haven't found a parent yet or an adult who would argue with me that they care about the health and the well-being of their young people. And in order for them to live these healthy lives, we need to make sure that they have access to really great, reliable information and or those kinds of folks, adults who can help them access that information. Because the majority of questions we're getting in sex ed come from some very well-intentioned uncle who said something at the cookout last weekend. And now I'm like having to explain to everybody like, wait a minute, that's not true. Those actually aren't facts. But parents are, they feel a little ill-equipped. We're exhausted. The pandemic has exhausted us even further. And we didn't get, we're not sex. I mean, I am, but the majority of parents are not sex educators. So they're like, yeah, teach all those facts at school. And then we partner with them at home and y'all continue the conversation at home and then talk about the values. That's where you could talk about your beliefs and like how those values and beliefs then influence what you do with the information you got at school. But what I'm going to do at school is I'm going to focus on the facts. I'm going to talk about consent from kindergarten because it's a skill and it's something that you need to practice. So let's practice it when you want to 
borrow your friend's crayons or you want to eat half their goldfish at snack time. And how do I ask you, is it okay? How do I look for that affirmative, enthusiastic yes when you want to eat my goldfish when I'm five? And then once I practice it and I get really good at it, by the time I get to an ask that's more of a sexual nature, I am incredibly good at making the ask for looking for that enthusiastic yes, for managing myself when I get the no. This is a conversation that I have with my own young people and their friends. You will not coerce me. You will not harass me. I told you no. That is a full and complete sentence. The sleepover is not happening. And so helping them to kind of manage and practice the skill from a really young age, like those are the little things that we can do as parents at home. And then if you're not feeling equipped to kind of cover all of the heavy like content knowledge or like the transfer of information, we have tons of really great resources. Even if you're in a state like my own that doesn't have the best sex ed because it doesn't exist, you then have access to like really wonderful resources to be able to get that information to your young people and then just continue to serve as that really wonderful, supportive parent or caregiver at home who can talk about the values and stuff and help you practice. Bernie, I really, really love that. And I love the idea. I mean, you've talked so much about equipping young people for all of these things. And I think another piece of that or kind of the flip side is addressing adults in the room. And I think a term that I want to bring into the space, another term that I'd like to bring into the space is cultification. Cultification is a cultural phenomenon, a thing that happens particularly with young black and brown folks. And it's this thing where adults tend to see young black and brown people as older than they actually are. So as years older or several developmental stages older. And I think when we bring that into the context of sexuality, the adultification specifically of young black and brown girls, young black and brown friend presenting folks, young black and brown everybody, is that that's where a lot of this shame comes in. And that's where also a lot of the cultural norms that create an environment where it is okay for grown folks to make comments about 14-year-olds because the narrative is, oh, she's just a fast little girl. That kind of shaming not only harms the young person in the moment by saying, you should feel ashamed of your body. It's your fault. It also lets everybody in the room know that's okay. And so I think one of the biggest things that as uh, adults, caregivers, parents, folks can do is uh, to really be conscious of that adultification and uh, to make an environment where that kind of thing is not okay and is not acceptable. I will also say not only in home environments, but also in schools. Again, same thing. And it's so important for teachers and for other folks who have these relationships with young people to really be aware of their own internal biases, of our own implicit biases, and make sure that we're actively working against them all of the time. Because I think where a lot of harm and a lot of shame can be introduced. Totally. And what came to mind when you were saying that was this piece around when people do it jokingly. You said like the, you're just a fast little girl, but I would even challenge 
young people when they're amongst their friends to be mindful of, of putting that narrative into their own systems, but also doing it jokingly with adults and teens and community members, like being really mindful of that because it perpetuates that harmful narrative. Oh, so much good stuff. So I'm going to pivot here because I want us to touch on investing into this space and advocates. How can co-conspirators, entrepreneurs, founders, investors, how can people who are working to really shift the narrative, not just within this space, but at a holistic level to shift the systemic issues in this space, whether that is financial investment, educational investment, how can they invest in this space more? I'm so happy you asked this question. Sex ed is under attack in ways that I have not seen in the likes of like my entire career. They came for abortion, they got it. They're coming for contraceptives. Sex ed is under attack on a daily. You would be shocked at the things that I'm hearing from educators, from administrators. We need folks to get out there, go to your local school board meetings, get involved, ask a question. What is the policy in your school district? Do your young people have access to sex education? It's such a low stakes thing to be able to just like look it up. See, does your school district even teach sex education? And then push them. Say, hey, can we maybe make this a little bit more inclusive if it needs to be? Can we be more affirming of LGBT students? What can you do in your local community to make sure that young people have access to these complete educations that they have a right to? Because when we don't provide them the access to a complete education, we then are setting our young people up for failure. And that is solely on the shoulders of the adults and the caregivers, politicians, the school administrators. So vocalize your support. We know that the support is there, but I think a lot of people are like, oh, well, of course everybody supports sex education. So there is a very small few who are fighting against it, but they've got money and they've got all the time in the world and they are organized and they're louder as a result of that. So understand that sex ed is under attack. So please support us. Please call your schools. Tell them thank you if they already are teaching sex ed and that you want them to continue to do it. And if they're not, try to find opportunities to kind of move along that spectrum to making sure your young people are getting access to sex education. I I don't anticipate that I will ever meet somebody who wants a young person to be ignorant or to have an incomplete education. And so advocating for this is incredibly important. Don't assume that it's already happening because more likely than not, it isn't, or it can be a whole lot better. And if it is really great, they're probably under attack right now. And they just need to hear that you are like appreciative and supportive. Brittany said vocalize your support. So I will say localize your support. We are most effective at our local levels, whatever that is. And so I think making sure that whatever community you are a part of, that the young people there have access to this safe, comprehensive sex education, localize whatever organization you're a part of, If you are a part of a faith community, if you are a part of a fraternity or sorority, there are so many other organizations like Advocates for Youth, like a Planned Parenthood that provide a free and comprehensive sex education 
because that's their mission. So partner with them for the youth group at your faith community and see if you can offer sex education there. There's so many places that are not necessarily just a school setting where folks can receive information. And I think that's one thing to stress is that even if they come for the schools and they're coming for the schools, there are other places. And so vocalizing your support, going out for school boards, absolutely. And then also doing what you can from where you are. I think that's what we all need is everybody doing what they can from where they are. I couldn't agree with you more. And let me just say, there is nothing more powerful than a parent or like a caregiver coming into a school. I have never seen things move faster than the threat of an angry parent showing up. So like angry parents showing up in support of sex said, y'all get things done. And then let your young people tell their stories, let them come in. They're advocating for themselves. So like when possible, move out the way and let them tell these adults what they need. I've had superintendents show up to trainings because their young people demanded it. And so they know what they need and whatever we can do to support them, we're happy to help out with that. I love what you both shared. And there's a question that's coming through around because a lot of people don't sit within this space. And the pushback that you may receive from community members, from parents How do you explain to them not only why people are coming for sex ed, why there's so much pushback against it, but like, how do you explain this is the exact benefit? You've spoken to the benefit, but if you could say the benefit in one phrase, one sentence, one line, how would you say that? And I want to clarify, it's typically when they're, when they are coming to fight sex ed, and I will give you that sentence, but when they're coming to fight sex ed, it is rooted in something even more hateful. It's usually not that they hate sex ed. It's that it's inclusive of LGBT students. It's that we're talking about trans health or that I have images or I use language that is affirming of all gender identities. It's usually rooted in something deeper. Sometimes it is just don't talk about sex because if you talk about it in 30 minutes, you're going to go out and do it in the hallway. And we know that's not the case. But usually it's rooted in something deeper. And so the sentence that I would share with folks, and like I said, the majority of folks are actually supportive of sex ed. When folks are a little bit uneasy, it's usually because they've heard misinformation that was intentionally aimed to misinform and confuse them. And so I am constantly having to clarify for adults and for parents and just letting them know that what we are doing in sex education is providing our young people with a responsive education so that they can make informed decisions about their body and about their relationships with other people, as opposed to have life happen to them, they get to then dictate the life that they want to live. And it's as simple as that. And I'm going to do so in a way that makes everyone in that classroom space feel safe, specifically my LGBT students, because when I do that, it makes the learning space safer for everyone in that classroom, regardless of their gender identity or their sexual orientation. And then when everybody else feels safe, everyone comes to school, attendance increases, test scores go up, whatever you're looking for to benefit in the school, whether it's like great test scores or whatever it might be, when they feel safe and they want to show, they will show up and you will see better results all around and it benefits everyone. Again, 
I don't have too much to add to that. I will say one thing, a sort of a sentence that I've found helps to kind of bring things to a very bottom line for people is we want kids to love themselves. We want young people to grow up loving themselves. And yeah, it's kind of a masturbation joke. And also it's real. I love that. So as we're coming towards the end, there are a couple of remaining questions that I have for you both. And Brittany, you spoke to this a little bit. You mentioned it, they came for abortion. So how do you believe Roe v. Wade and the decision that was made there will affect your line of work in the coming years? This is going to have a lasting impact on generations to come. And ultimately, what we're telling young people is we're perpetuating the same harm that we are trying to dismantle in these great sex ed spaces that you aren't able to make the decisions around your own body, that you do not have the autonomy or the capacity to be able to make a good decision around what happens to your body. And I had this conversation with my nine-year-old daughter about Roe v. Wade, and she just could not wrap her mind around the idea that she doesn't know what her body needs. If she's hungry, she's going to get a snack. If I'm thirsty, I'll grab some water. How can somebody tell me what my body needs or what should happen to my body? And young people are infuriated, rightfully so. I'm infuriated. Everyone has a right to determine what happens to their body. You have the ability to be able to decide what happens to your body. And what this has done is we are removing the power from the hands of the person who's responsible for their own body to be able to make those decisions. It will continue to impact my job, I think, on a daily, just as I continue to field questions from schools, from school districts. They're getting them from their young people around how this impacts their access to health care. This will continue to, I think, increase those rates of like mortality. This will greatly impact mental health. This is going to impact the whole person. And so what terrifies me is that the, this wasn't the last stop. This wasn't the goal. There's so much more that is being, that is under attack right now, contraceptive access, sexual health education. And that seems incredibly unfair to, to take away access to health care, education, and then expect people to be able to matriculate through life without all of the tools that they need in order to do so. I think with regard to the overturning of Roe, at CI3, we have a youth advisory council. It's a group of uh, young people ages 14 to 18, and they are our partners on all of our projects. And uh, this year, we had a meeting where we specifically discussed the implications of Roe being overturned. And uh, from that, we put out a statement in part with our youth advisory council. So. If it's all right with you all, I'd just like to share a quote from uh, one of the young people that we work with about this decision. This is a young person who lives in Chicago. So uh, they said, I'm terrified, 
but also I've frankly never been more relieved that I live in a place that will not be as affected by dogs. The opinion has impacted my plans for the future. I've been researching careers that will provide me with more independence in terms of where I live because I don't want to live in a place that will so potently lessen the extent of my bodily autonomy. So that's what we're hearing from young people is that it feels like this is the first of a domino, of many dominoes. And if we don't stop it now, if we don't do something now, the momentum will only increase. And I think that's what's scary. I'm really glad that you touched on that because one of the questions that was <laughs> coming up was like, why is it important that we amplify the voices of young people? And there's this theme of young people, they know what they need. They know what they need. And it's just about us listening, not telling them. Can you talk about any resources that you would recommend people look up or reach out to? Just want to say thank you so much for having me. And to any parents or caregivers of young people who you just absolutely love in your life, know that there's a ton of really great resources out there for you. We have a ton at our website, advocatesforyouth.org. We also partner with some really great organizations to offer Amaze. Dot org where we have these fantastic little videos that cover a ton of topics. So we get the honest and complete education right into the hands of young people through really funny videos. There's a ton of things out there and we love your support. We are partnering with you to ensure that your young people get the information that they deserve. So if there's ever anything that we can do, we are happy to jump in and help however we possibly can. and continuing to just let young people kind of lead us in this work and partnering with them in such an authentic way to ensure that we continue to grow and evolve and are evergreen in the sex education that we will fight to ensure that people still have access to. So let's see. One of my very favorite organizations is called Peer Health Exchange. Peer Health Exchange is a nationwide organization that provides uh, school-based uh, sex ed programming using a near-peer mentor model. So uh, all of the fellows who provide their health education, really, it's not just sex education, but that provide their health education are folks who've recently graduated from high school themselves. And so I love Peer Health Exchange because of its near-peer mentor model. They also have an app called SelfSea, that's S-E-L-F-S-E-A, that features content created by young people for young people. So it's kind of a part and parcel of the, is it Amaze, the website that Brittany mentioned as part of Advocates for Youth. But yeah, kind of partners and is complementary to that. Another resource that I really love because we've been talking about Roe having been overturned, I will shout out the National Network of Abortion Funds. These are folks who have like local chapters of national organizations. We have a Chicago abortion fund here 
and they will work with you to not only get access to safe abortion care, but also all of the other pieces associated with it. So transportation, housing, many folks are going to be needing to travel further and further to receive abortion care. And the National Network of Abortion Funds helps people with all parts of that process. And then uh, go local as well. I'll shout out an organization called Resilience Chicago. They provide education specifically around consent, bodily autonomy, and sexual assault here in Chicago. They also have a sexual assault hotline and do advocacy work as well. So these are all resources for adults who want to be co-conspirators, young people who are looking for resources, ways to get involved in education. Can you let people know how they can find you online? So, yeah. We can be reached at CI3 at UChicago. So that is CI3 UChicago on all platforms, CI and then the number three. My name is Ailea Stites, A-I-L-E-A-S-T-I-T-E-S. You can find me on LinkedIn and Instagram. So before we sign off, the last question is like, how are you using the power that you have to make a difference? How does that show up daily And what type of impact do you want to leave on the world? I hold a position of privilege in that I'm an adult who is attached to an educational institution like the University of Chicago. And so for me, in my day-to-day work, I'm always thinking about how can I make sure that this relationship that I have with the university and that the university has with the community and that I, as a representative of the university, have with the community is not extractive in nature and is not exploitative in any way. I led the development process for a framework for youth engagement where everybody at CI3, we go through a training process that really has us take a look at who we are as adults showing up in spaces, how we want to represent ourselves, but then also how we want to behave in a way that shows humility and respect for young people who are the experts in their own experiences. And so that's one way where I really strive to make sure that the adults and the representatives of the institution that I'm a part of aren't perpetuating harm on an individual or an interpersonal level. That's one thing that I like am really passionate about doing. Another thing is the Youth Advisory Council that I work with. I'm really proud of how we've been able to use our position at CI3 to elevate their voices. A lot of the work that we do is around amplifying what they have to say. So like using quotes from our youth council, having them be co-authors on our papers so that not only are their voices being amplified, but they're also getting a tangible benefit of co-authorship on an academic publication. For me, like I'm able to make those things happen. I'm able to facilitate that. If I can get institutions to listen just a little bit more to the people who've been systematically marginalized by them, that's the impact that I would want to leave. What you just spoke to is huge. And there are people that may fear 
what happens to them and the repercussions of that. So how would you approach that or encourage or empower them to take a stand in the things that they're being called to take a stand in? I'm really glad you asked about that because it can be really hard. And it can be really hard, particularly when you're in a place where there's genuine fear of backlash of what will happen to me if I do. What will happen to me if it is, I think, number one, our own safety has to be important. So if for whatever reason, you don't feel safe taking a stand, right? There are times where I don't feel safe saying, yes, hi, I'm my Leastites, they, them. And that's okay. Because at the end of the day, my survival is more important, at least to me. You can't do everything all of the time, but doing what we can from where we are is what's important. And it's a balance that's really hard to navigate and finding that balance of, okay, I'm taking a stand in what's important. I'm moving the needle. I'm meeting people where they are as much as I can. And I'm also taking care of myself. I don't know, man, when I figure it out, I'll hit you up and let you know. <laughs> I don't, I haven't gotten there yet. <laughs> the duality, the duality. Oh my God. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I really appreciate the approach that you just shared though. I really appreciate it. Like your safety is paramount first. Their safety is paramount first. And then it's like, what can I do with where I am and what I have? So thank you so much for sharing Yeah, absolutely. Do you have any last words that you would like our audience to take away? My last word would be loving yourself for everybody. But then also loving ourselves means that the cycle of trauma stops with us. And that's important. Yes. I love that. I got like body chills from that. (laughs) Oh, thanks. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for having me. This has been really great. I've had so much fun and I've really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you so much for being here and sharing everything. And I feel like there are going to be so many more conversations that come from this. I'm so curious to see what parents and other individuals have to take away from this conversation and what they can really absorb into their own styles. Likewise. I hope folks can get something out of this. I definitely think they (laughs) (laughs) will. Okay, good. Okay, good. So thank you everyone for being here with us today. You can follow us online at PS underscore Blossom on Twitter or Instagram. And we look forward to speaking with you all and connecting with you online and we will see you next time.